I turned up in uh, rural New South Wales and I looked on an old map and I saw these little railway stations. And I said, that's brilliant. You'd be able to get from this. And I tell you, this client, you can get from this town to that town. I don't quite know. I haven't got my timetable sorted yet. You see, that train hasn't run for 20 years. <laughs> when we're teaching O&M in rural areas, anything can happen. In this episode, we have such a special treat for you. Two of our International O&M Online Symposium Planning Committee members are coming on the podcast today, and we are going to just have a casual conversation about teaching O&M in rural environments. Now, the cool thing about this episode is that we don't give you a specific how-to, because their whole thing is that you have to think outside of the box. So if you have students who are traveling environments that are brand new to them, or if you have students who travel in areas that the sidewalk ends, or you want to start thinking outside of the O&M curriculum standards that you've been upholding for a really long time, my friend, I invite you not only to listen to this episode, but to also join us for the free continuing education credit webinar that we are going to be hosting on November 12th. There's more information in the actual episode itself. So we'll dive into that in just a little bit, but I want to take a moment and introduce you to Shannon and Jeremy. Shannon Wright is a certified orientation and mobility specialist, and she has been for the past 12 years. She's also a nationally certified American Sign Language interpreter and certified vocational rehab teacher. I mean, she does it all. (laughs) She is a full-time independent contractor for various agencies, and she's given presentations on trainings related to deafblind interpreting, support service providers, and how to provide orientation and mobility services to deafblind individuals throughout the U.S. and internationally. She lives in the United States. She lives in a rural area, and she'll tell you a little bit about that. On the contrast, we've got Jeremy Hill, who's from Australia, and he works for the Guide Dogs of New South Wales in Australia, and he's also the team manager for services in the north coast of New South Wales. He's been an O&M specialist for 32 years, and last year he acquired his ACVREP comms certification. His areas of expertise are in management of services in rural and remote areas, neurological visual impairments, and cortical visual impairments in children. He's also the immediate past president of the Orientation and Mobility Association of Australasia. I mean, how cool is that? So we've got two people from different sides of the world facing the same exact things, and you'll hear them talk about the differences between the deer and the kangaroo and so much more. So let's just get into it. Welcome to episode six of A Step Forward. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for orientation and mobility specialists. I'm your host, Cassie Maloney. Orientation and mobility specialists are changing the way that people with visual impairments view themselves, view their world, and are able to travel in the most independent way possible. Join me every week for simple how-to strategies and inspiring conversations that will help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Now, if you're ready, we're about to rock and roll. Let's take a step forward. Welcome back to the Step Forward podcast. We're here with Jeremy Hill and Shannon Wright, who are both orientation and mobility specialists from different parts of the world, and they specialize in teaching orientation and mobility in rural environments. You guys, 
We have such a great treat for you today. We're going to just have a little conversation with Jeremy and Shannon, get to know them. And then at the end, we will tell you how you can learn more about both them and how to teach orientation and mobility in rural environments and small towns. So welcome, Jeremy and Shannon. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks so much, Cassie, for having me. Great to be with you. So, Jeremy, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got started in O&M? Sure. Thanks, Cassie. Yeah, I graduated in 1987 with a graduate diploma of O&M, and I've been doing a science degree before that. But to pay my way through doing a science degree, I used to work as a narrator at a local talking books library and attached to the Association of the Blind of Western Australia. And I used to read children's stories, and I got quite clever. I used to start doing sound effects and things with little tin cans and bells and whistles and all sorts of things. But the important part was I got to meet a group or a team of orientation mobility specialists who were working in the field around Perth and working in rural areas. And got talking and got very interested in something I suddenly realised this is something I'd really like to do. It appeared to be something that was very rewarding and something I'd like to try. So then I channeled my biology degree into a few prerequisites and off I went for 12 months to learn how to be an orientation and mobility instructor in Melbourne. And in those days, we were the Royal Guide Dogs. So various people would come from different states and do a central course at the head office. So we grew great friendships that we keep in touch with now. Then I went back to my hometown of Perth and became mainly working with children. And then I worked in Western Australia for a couple of years and was promoted to the first regional manager in Bunbury, way down southwest of WA. That was my first rural post and absolutely loved it. Then my wife and I did a gap year, uh, went over to Middle East and uh, Europe and travelled. Then I ran out of money. And then they said, would you like to work in New South Wales? So I chose a little place called Coffs Harbour. And that's where I am now. And I've been there ever since 1993. I now work as a team manager. I have a team of 13 different professionals and we work a large area, a very large area of uh, New South Wales in a variety of different environments, which are always quite complex and you're always trying to think of ways to enable people to get around safely and confidently. That sounds amazing. And you mentioned working for the guide dogs. Mm -hmm. Are you a guide dog mobility instructor? Do you teach students or clients to use canes? What does that look like for you? I specialize as an orientation mobility instructor, not not a guide dog instructor, but our team does have a guide dog instructor. And a lot of our guide dogs come ready trained from Sydney. And then the guide dog instructor trains in the local environment. But I, I work in O&M. I love working in the area of children. But I guess with being a manager, I have much lower caseload than my colleagues do. But it's a good job in that I'm able to keep a, about 10 or so clients on my caseload. 50% of those are children. I specialize in cortical vision impairment too. And my other clients, I work in uh, orientation mobility with neurologically impaired clients. So clients have got hemianopias and they've lost their vision due to a stroke. And you're trying to get them back into the, into the world so they can actually cross roads and read and do all those things all over again. So it's good to keep my foot in the door regarding practical skills because that way you can keep your skills up to date. And I can relate to my staff and uh, we always use, we usually have a couple of new staff, so it's nice to get out with them and give them a help and be assistant and I love getting out in the countryside. 
That's wonderful. Oh my gosh. There's so much that I didn't even know about you with that. And I know that you are teaching on Hemianopsia at the symposium. So excited about that. And our listeners right now don't have the agenda yet. So there's a little sneak peek. Miss Shannon, I would love to have our listeners get to know you, who you are and how you got started. Thanks, Cassie. Sure. So I started actually through being a sign language interpreter. I was in a sign language interpreting program when I met deafblind individual, and he and I became really good friends. I decided I wanted to work with deafblind people just in general and wanted to support them in all the ways that I could, including orientation and mobility, vision rehab therapy, assistive technology. So I finished my sign language interpreting program and then went to UMass Boston, University of Massachusetts up in Boston. And I got a dual degree basically in both orientation and mobility and vision rehab therapy from there. So I was up in the Boston area and really my passion for the work has been driven by working with deafblind people. That's how I really got into this. Since I got my degrees and went through my internships and became certified in all the areas, I moved to a rural area. So I now live on what's called the Eastern Shore of Virginia. Most people don't even know it exists. Even people who live in Virginia don't know that this little part of Virginia where I live exists. So it's on the Delmarva Peninsula with Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. It's a very small portion of the state. So I live out here in the middle of nowhere. I do teach orientation and mobility to deafblind people still. There aren't many deafblind people out here in this rural area. So I commute to DC and Baltimore to teach deafblind people there. I work in this rural area with blind adults as well as blind children. Wow. You guys seem so impressive. There's so many more questions. I could ask both of you about that, but just staying on the topic of rural environments, I actually thought of a new question to ask you guys, and and I'll just let you answer. Can you explain what a rural environment might look like in your area? I suppose the biggest thing about rural areas is it's quite a shock for students who have been learning in a city environment. You're taught from scratch to find a block and to learn your way around the block and to actually practice being under blindfold and to learn all those cues of knowing when you get to a corner, when you can find the edge of the curb. And you come to a rural area and the clients, that's what staff will suddenly think, well, we haven't got that area to train clients in because we don't have a clear cut block. You can go into a country town and you spend half an hour driving around in your car trying to find a a simple block that you can get the person out on. And so that's why actually for um, some clients, we actually set up a system where we bring them into places like Coffs Harbour, where we have a bit more of a a city-style environment to train clients in. But a lot of country towns are historical in that the streets are extremely wide in rural Australia because they would have turned the camel trains around or the oxen. And so the poor modern councils then stuck with this huge, great wide road. And the other thing is we get flash flooding. So the other thing is they build very deep gutters. I mean, gutters which are probably about two or three feet high, um, so that the water rushes off the middle of the road into the edge of the road. So you now have a very wide road with an extremely high camber. It's like climbing a hill and going down the other side. And uh, very few zebra crossings too, very few mark crossings, certainly no traffic lights. And so you're trying to teach clients and teach instructors how to make the best of those environments. And in some areas, to find your letterbox or to find your house, it's literally you stick a doorbell in the letterbox and the client presses the doorbell button remote when they get close and they can find where their house is or where the entrance to their track is. So 
we do have a lot of suburban type areas now in the bigger cities, but that's that's the sort of thing I always think of as purely remote. And the other thing about remote is you you estimate to get to someone's house within an hour or two, and you find sometimes it's way over that due to the environmental things that change, like flooding, or in some areas of rural New South Wales, snow, fog. And at the moment in Coffs Harbour, we have a hazy town because we have uh, local bushfires burning. So that slows you down, and you've got to try and guess for that. But rural clients are very understanding and understand that you've got different elements around you. But it's also important to try and plan and fact that into it so that's my idea i've only worked in rural australia so it's quite a surprise when i try and teach clients who do who do have more of a city type of environment likewise i would say i completely echo a lot of similarities with what jeremy has outlined we also again have huge ditches and culverts on the sides of our streets where i live in this coastal area we have a lot of coastal flooding It's often that roads here are impeded by the water rising and completely washing out roads or bridges. So those are certainly things that we have to take into consideration here on the East Coast where I live. Fog, again, as he mentioned, is another consideration. I would say a couple things just to add to his comment. There aren't any sidewalks where my students live, at least. I don't know about Jeremy's, but again, we're walking on the road often if we're walking out in these rural areas and people really want to walk somewhere. Also, here, just scheduling and the timing of our public transportation system is ludicrous considered to any sort of city environment where the buses come at a very regularly scheduled intervals. There are a lot of issues with individuals being able to get to a place, but then they can't get back from that place in the same day. Or they can get there, but they don't have time to do anything while they're there before they have to come back in order to you know, follow the bus schedules. We do have buses that run here locally in some areas on only Tuesdays and Thursdays at 10.30, 12.30, 2.30, and 4.30. So if you can't catch the bus at one of those specific times, you can't ride the bus. There is no such thing as Uber here. And food delivery even, for example, where I live at my house, I got food delivery for the very first time. I'm very happy to report last Sunday. I got a pizza delivered to my house for the very first time. And food delivery here in this area just doesn't exist. I found a little loophole with a local pizza company, so I took advantage of it. But those sorts of, you know, run-of-the-mill things that people in larger cities just take for granted. Eh, If I miss this bus, I'll just get the next one. It'll be here in 10 or 15 minutes. That's not an option here. And often, we also have flag stops here where you can stand along the route that the bus will travel at specific locations, call in advance to the bus company and let them know that you're standing there and hopefully the bus doesn't pass you by, hopefully the bus pulls over and picks you up, but it's not at a regularly scheduled bus stop. These are random kind of as needed, we call them flag stops here. So those are just a couple of additional items to add to the laundry list of things that are rural O&M numbers encounter that those in the city I think never think of. I also have taken students to Washington DC and Baltimore to have access to actual public transportation systems that run reliably and with airports. 
there's no local airport here. There is one. It's very, very small. There's two mm. gates. The same people that work the check-in counter load you on the airplane. You walk out to it on the tarmac. It's a very small airport. It's not an airport that my students would use in the future. They would likely be flying out of a larger airport. So, you know, those sorts of things are some of the items that I think of associated with rural mm. travel and its challenges. Yeah, I've, I've been on flights where the co-pilot will actually start to hand out the coffee. <laughs> They're very true about buses too. We have a similar issue where you have to go in on the school bus and you can't get home until you come home on the same school bus again. So we've got elderly people who are hanging around towns having done their shopping until three o'clock when they can get back on, on the buses too. But yes, a lot of similarities there, Sharon. I love the similarities between you guys. I love hearing you guys talk. Um, we've talked behind the scenes a little bit about the difference between Shannon, you have deer, and Jeremy, you have kangaroos, but mostly it's all the same. You have almost the same challenges. Within those challenges, what do you think is one of the biggest mistakes that O&M specialists make when they're teaching O&M in a rural environment? One of the big things is how things, environments can change between lessons too. So you'll be teaching a client to cross a certain road or a certain position where they are orientated to, and then something will be moved there or something will be being built there or something will be changed. The other thing is the way that if we're not careful to plan distances too, because it looks like you can get from one town to another, but you can be horribly late sometimes because you don't factor that in. So there's a lot of room margins for error in rural travel then of course the weather you know i was just gonna add i think that generally o&ms don't think outside the box we're very routine step-by-step mm. instructors that's how we were taught and we very much are procedure oriented and like to follow a set procedure and i think sometimes that's not the way it works in the country i mean really those sorts of things just those types of techniques for example just don't work the type of tip that you would normally use on a cane won't work. That type of cane, if you're using a fiberglass cane, for example, will just snap in some mm -hmm. cases with some of the terrain that we're having to traverse. One of my students walks between her house and a neighbor's house through the woods on a footpath that doesn't really have any landmarks. She just kind of follows the tree line. So if her cane gets stuck somewhere, they're very easy to snap. So I really think for as programmed as we are coming out of school and starting our careers, we really have to kind of step away from that and allow ourselves to think outside the box and find some creative solutions for our students. Very true. So one of my favorite inventions I've made is to have a rural tip or an ordinary tip on one end of a cane, and then you cut a piece of the handle off the other end of that with a big fat, what I call a four-wheel drive tip on the end of it so that you can swap and change as you're walking along. And teaching children to, before you step into a puddle, measure how many knuckles up the long cane the water goes before you step into it. So the, the long cane is a terrific water measurer too, to work out things. And sometimes you have to use the long cane like a bit of a staff because you're pushing yourself up a gravel footpath or something like that to check where you're going. I think technology has been absolutely wonderful in rural areas. Some things like the trek and breeze and things like that now, where you can actually use GPS to cross yourself across a, an open space, which saves a lot of time, especially for elderly people who really haven't got the energy to walk around a big area, but they can just cut straight across a paddock or across a school oval. 
and save themselves time. So I think technology is really helping us here. And one of our favorite tips is the South African Bundu Basho. You know, you can use that cane to work your way through gravel footpaths or run it along chicken wire fences and things too. So that gives you a good boundary, but different techniques, yeah. Jeremy, can you tell me the name of that cane again? Bundu Basha, B-U-N-D-U. And it's like a shepherd's crook and it fastens onto the end of the cane and you can either snake it through gravel or you can actually push it up against the edge of a fence, usually chicken wire or something that's metal, and run that along the edge. And also things like the mini guide are good because you can use that for even following uh, very thin wire fences too with that sort of thing. So you've got, you've got a good, you can keep a good stable distance. That's the yeah, it's Very often the client will come up with ideas. We, I remember over the Christmas holidays when our office had shut down and the local farmer had broken his cane, but we weren't able to get him a replacement. And he went into his shed and got himself an old car aerial, and he was tapping around with that for a couple of weeks and found that quite effective. So I think it's better being very inventive, I think, and that's what's so fun about being a rural O&M, is our staff meetings will turn into tricks of the trades, we call them, swapping ideas of how we can get people across certain things. And nothing's impossible if you work with the client, swap ideas with the client, and there's different ways to get across the terrain. I love how creative you guys are. You both just talked about different ways that you were both really creative and getting your students or your clients, whatever you call them, to where they needed to go. Have you noticed that your ability to think outside of the box has changed from when you first started teaching O&M in a rural environment to now? Yeah, I think when I was trained, you had a very clear progression of how cane skills would would progress up the ladder as the person got more and more confident. And now there's a little bit more like you change your technique to suit the type of footpaths that you're walking on, that sort of thing. Using your other senses a lot, using the, the direction of the sun, whether it's on your back or whether it's on your face, and concentrating on what your feet are telling you about the ground because you can have quite subtle changes between gravel and grass and that sort of thing. So I call these like nearby considerations of things you have to take into account. Smell, you can certainly tell when you're walking past a dairy farm. So it's really getting people to not just to use long cane skills to detect what's on the footpath and things like tactile ground surface indicators are just an unknown in rural Australia. It's a matter of using other clues. So it's really getting people to tune in using different sound clues. You know you're walking past a big barn or a wall because you can actually hear it. I think that's what's so fascinating about um, there are different clues out there in rural Australia if you can just tune into them. Would that be right, Shannon? For sure. I mean, one thing that I was just going to mention is I think by default, you have to change or else you won't be successful. And therefore, your client, consumer, student will not be successful either, right? Our goal is to get them from point A to point B. And when you encounter barrier after barrier, whether it be the weather, the actual physical area itself with the challenges of the terrain or the width of the street or the ditch or what have you, or the bus schedules, whatever it is, once you encounter these obstacles, by default, you have to change from your normal prescribed method that as an O&M, you are taught, you know, those step-by-step first residential area travel, then business area travel, then public transportation. If they can't even get to a business area to travel there, 
then you kind of have to reorganize and restructure how you teach your lessons. The first lesson has to be in their home area so that they can actually go outside of their house and take their trash to the road so that the garbage truck can come by or learn the route from their home, their door to their mailbox so that they can go pick up their mail. And then residential travel doesn't exist. As Jeremy and I have been talking about, there is no residential area. The nearest house in cases are miles away. They're not going to walk to their neighbor's house. Or then you move on to public transportation. You kind of skip the residential and business area travel in your kind of routine pattern that you would take. And you jump straight to public transportation so that the person can get, as Jeremy has mentioned, to a larger kind of more business-like area where you can then start to train them on that travel. So sometimes you have to do things in a little bit different order. Sometimes the types of skills that the student needs aren't ideal, right? We would like them to learn it in a very prescribed order for a reason, and sometimes it just can't happen that way. So again, I think by default, if you want your student to be successful or rural O&M travel, you kind of just have to put that aside and kind of go with the flow and do what's naturally would come next in the sequence and not necessarily use the prescribed order we're used to. That's very interesting. And that's the environment. But I think another part of the environment is the social environment. Of Most of our country towns may only have one or two vision impaired people. And the town almost, especially with children, almost becomes an owner of that person. So as soon as they see that little Johnny walking down the street, someone will reach out and take him across the road or help him out. And and when they go into schools, they'll have buddy systems and things, and there'll be this whole support system around them. And then as an O&M, you feel like you have to almost peel that all away because you've got to say, well, this little Johnny, they're not going to want to be a buddy anymore or to people aren't going to always help him. And so it's important in country towns to, because you are a bit of a novelty when you're vision impaired in country towns too. Biggest challenges was to try and educate people that these people can actually do this for themselves and they're not something that you all chip in and help. It's not a charity case. And the other thing is realizing that you were talking about bus travel before, when children jump on a bus, you'll have a good, a well-meaning bus driver who will say, I'll let you know when it's time to get off. And then they'll either change drivers or he'll forget to tell little Johnny when he's got to his particular school. So you've got to almost got to teach the two things, teach the student to not always rely on people around them. And then, as I say, trying to peel the social support away a little bit so they can become independent. Because these kids are also probably going to go to university, moving away from that protected little country town to a bigger city. And that's why when in Coffs Harbour, we try once every 12 months to run a city-wise program, we call it, where we take them to Brisbane or Sydney or somewhere where they can, or even Coffs Harbour, where we have real traffic lights and things where we can actually teach them how to get it. Otherwise, it's too big a jump from that quiet setting to getting around. I think we say quiet setting, but rural areas are actually way more complex than city environments when you have to remember all these little intricacies of when I get to this particular corner, I've got to turn myself at two o'clock to get straight across the other road. When I get to the next corner, I've got to remember another intricacy. I've got to remember putting my back against that electrical pole and turn two paces to the right. And all this. It's like a treasure island map, isn't it, getting around a country town. And whereas in the city, you can just pretty well rely on everything being perpendicular and straight. And I think that's why if you are getting around a country town, you have a lot more skills up your sleeve. That's wonderful. So again, right in line with Jeremy, the problem-solving techniques are critical skills that we need our students to have. 
whether they're school age or adults, the problem solving skills are critical. I think they're even more critical for rural travel because you don't have other pedestrians walking by or other people to ask and other people kind of around you in your environment. Again, here we have the same kind of novelty type of feel with my students. Oh, the blind, you know, boy or the blind mm. lady. Everybody knows who the blind people are and they go to great lengths to try and help them, which is very nice. And in no way am I criticizing that, but I do, like you mentioned, try to explain to the public that there are instances where the person needs to do it for themselves so that they know how because for their entire lifetime somebody else has done this skill or taken on that task for them and they need to know how to handle that if you're not there or if the bus driver changes or whatever the case may be. So again, just trying to minimize those enabling behaviors from the public at large when we're working with our students. Certainly I find that to be a challenge. And one of the cool things that we have about this conversation is that the two of you guys can take this information so much deeper than we have time for. In our webinar, you guys, it's coming up on November 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For those of you guys who are on Jeremy's time zone, that's November 13th for you at noon, I believe. We are going to be having them talk about the challenges that they face and also how they overcome those challenges so that way you can walk away with tangible tips on how to help your students succeed in a rural environment. We want to be a support system for you. And you'll also get to be the first people to hear about the symposium this year, which will be very exciting. I'll hop on at the very end after they are done talking and we'll share more about that. You guys, I want to honor your time. Jeremy, I know it's Monday morning for you while we are recording this and you've got to get to your clients. Let me just ask both of you guys one last question before we head out. And that is, what is one thing that our listeners can do to take a step forward today? This is Shannon. I'll just hop in. So certainly one thing that I would encourage everyone to do to take a step forward is to just think outside the box. I mentioned that earlier in the conversation, and I think it's absolutely critical that you kind of strip away any preconceived notions you might have and really think about what the student can do at the highest level. I think there are some cases where teachers teach kind of from a bottom-up approach where they kind of ask the student to prove to them that they can do a task and then they kind of bump up the bar. But what I think that I would ask everyone to do is really to assume that your student can do the thing that you are expecting of them until they show you that they cannot. So kind of flip your thinking for a top-down approach where you assume that they can do it all and then you kind of work down to the level that you're at as opposed to having them have to prove to you at each step that they can do a task. I think that that's really critical and just our overall approach to teaching O&M. I'd say two things I've learned from working in the country is number one, when you've come across somebody who's been in that town for quite a few years, they're getting around pretty independently, they've usually got their own style, you think, where on earth did they get that cane style from, is to really, like I used to know a guy who just joined his hands as though he's praying with his cane and he'd cross the road, actions here on the screen, but uh, he'll just tap the cane in front of him and, and every time he would get straight across that extremely wide road, dead straight and 
every time. And I've practiced it under blindfold and it's really making the most of midline and crossing the road. And so I was just ready to jump in there and say, well, I can improve that cane skill for you. And if I can improve that, you've got a bad habit there. As a nice fresh O&M who's just dying to dive in and help him. And he said, no, no, everybody tells me that. Let me show you. And I learned a lot from that chap. It's like learning from the wise men of vision impairment. And I think the other thing is when you see a client who's struggling to pick up a task or a skill that you're trying to teach in a various certain environment, go in with a colleague, put a blindfold on yourself and have a go at doing it yourself. That way you're feeling safe because someone's watching you. Sometimes it's difficult to get two instructors in the same spot, but just having a go at doing it yourself and you think, Ah, now I know why he's veering or now I know why that person's getting lost. And you don't need to do that so much in the city environment, but I think it's really important to get out and about with other instructors and have a go at doing these things and learning new techniques because a lot of it isn't in in the book, isn't in the O&M training manual. I'd love to design a rural travel book one day (laughs) of all these different skills. It's very hard to put on paper because it all relies on the same different factors. It's a fascinating topic and I'd recommend rural travel and O&M lifestyle to anybody who wanted to try it. Shannon was giving you the thumbs up there because it's so true. Even my short amount of time that I was teaching contract in a rural town, I mean, everything was so different. Every student, every area where they were at, all the challenges it's a lot. And so I am just so grateful for you for coming on the podcast, both of you guys, and for teaching our webinar. Again, you guys, it's coming up November 12th, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find out more information at alliedindependenceonline.com forward slash webinar. That's alliedindependenceonline.com forward slash webinar. It'll also be in the show notes. Well, thank you, Jeremy and Shannon, so, so very much. I absolutely appreciate it. Thank you, Cassie, for the opportunity. Bye. Bye, y'all.